Good morning. How are you guys doing? Nice. I'm going to just clean up here real quick. This is, I guess, the, the few, the, it's okay. Hey, let me serve you. Um, this is uh, the few, the proud, the, those who uh, joined us on St. Patty's, right? No? Okay. Well, I thought that was cool. I mean, whatever. I'm not even going to go into it. <laughs> Uh, my name is uh, my name. Uh, my name is Marco. Uh, I'm the preaching pastor here at Storehouse. Uh, so we're going to be uh, looking at a large chunk of scripture uh, this morning. I kind of just want to dive into our time, and so if you would kindly open your Bibles uh, with me, uh, it's going to be First uh, Peter chapter two. We're, we're going to look at a large chunk of scripture this morning. We're looking at First Peter chapter two, verses thirteen through 25. So uh, again, a large piece of scripture. Um, while you guys are, are doing that, I got a couple of quick announcements for you while, while I'm up here. Uh, the first one is, I'm pretty, this one's pretty cool. Uh, so in the back in the connect area, uh, we have these scripture journals. These are made by Crossway Publishing. Uh, and so uh, these are scripture journals that go along with books of the Bible and you can write notes uh, along with what you're learning and what you're studying. It's a moleskin which means it's very good quality. The paper is dynamic. It's not uh, too thin, so it won't bleed through for any of you who are pencil or pen nerds. Um, this is our gift to you as we walk through First, uh, first Peter. What's cool about this, on top of what I just said, is that this includes First and Second Peter and the book of Jude, so, uh, or the letter to Jude. So if you would like, after service, Man, go to the back, tell them I sent you, and uh, this, is, uh, this is a gift for you. Again, these are really, really cool. Came up by Crossway a couple of months ago. Um, if you dig this, you can obviously buy the set online. And uh, every time we do books of the Bible, we'd like to hook you guys up with these. Uh, because I love, I love it when you take notes. I'm a note taker. Uh, in addition to that, um, I love circling and underlining and highlighting uh, my Bible. It's always written around, and I know some of you like that too. Um, further, I, I love the sound of pages turning, especially in Bibles, and so that's what I'm talking about. So, uh, so with, with all that being said, uh, again, this is our gift to you, so please pick one up. Uh, these are really cool. I dig them. I hope you dig them as well. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, I could put this back here. The next thing is uh, last week, and I'll, I'll be brief about this, uh, but last week uh, I introduced to you, or we introduced to you, something that we're doing called the Grace Initiative. The Grace Initiative is a three-week giving campaign where our aim is to raise $1,000 by next Sunday. So it's a week from today. And the purpose of these, this $1,000 is so that we would then go back out and bless our city, our community, our missional partners, partners, uh, specifically through our community groups, which, which tells you a couple of things. Number one, if you're not in a community group, uh, man, uh, this is just me uh, inviting you to please consider and join a community group. Uh, for us right now, this is our main avenue of not just community, but uh, mission, discipleship, care, all of those things that we do funnel through community groups. Uh, mission fall, uh, uh, funnels through community groups, so please consider joining or visiting them. You can talk to the girls in the back at the Connect Desk, or I'd, uh, I'd love to answer any questions that you may have. That's number one. 
number two, as a response to it, um, the idea behind the Grace Initiative is that we want to practice grace by blessing our city, but we also want to proclaim grace. That is, we want to proclaim the gospel to those that we serve. And so who are we going to serve? That's really going to be left up to the community group. So current community group leaders are thinking through, praying, man, who are we going to bless? How are we going to bless them? Is it a single mom? Is it a family? Is it an organization that we partner with? Uh, They're going to be thinking through, discussing all of those things. And if you want to participate and be on mission with us, then consider joining a community group. All of this money that is raised, again, is going to go directly back into community groups, and they're going to they're gonna rock it in our city. So I would uh, certainly encourage you not just to join a community group, but also to participate with us on mission through the Grace Initiative. You can give one of two ways. Number one, you can give online. For some of you, that might just be easier. You can go to storehousemccallum.com slash give. Follow the directions there. Uh, or number two, there are giving envelopes in the chairs or in the Back Connect desk. Fill one out and write the word grace on there so that we know that it's going specifically towards the grace initiative. With that being said, just a couple of items for this morning uh, along the grace initiative. Uh, because we're raising this funds through next Sunday, today and next Sunday, we're going to be taking up two offerings to give you that opportunity to write that on that envelope or, or give however it is you so please. So we're going to be doing two offerings. Uh, after the sermon, I'm going to pray for our general tithes and offering, and then we're going to transition into a time where we, the, the, the offering baskets or offering plates uh, go down uh, the, the rows, the aisles one more time. And that second time is specific to the Grace Initiative. You have more questions? Hunt me down after service. would love to talk about it, or you can just go online. All that being said, let's jump into our time. Once again, if you have just joined us, uh, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. I got a couple of things that I want to kind of recap for us as we launch into this time. And so up until now, we've looked at about four transitions in uh, the epistle of 1 Peter. Uh, We have looked at God's work for us. That was really, I guess you would say, month one. We looked at God's work for us, what God is doing in us through Christ, what Christ has done for us uh, on the cross. The second transition was uh, as a result of who God says we are in Christ, uh, we spent a considerable time talking about the pursuit of holiness. Well, what is holiness? What is the motivation behind holiness? And what are the means to holiness. All of these things, all of these sermons are online. So if if you've missed one or two, you can go online to check it out. And so we talked about the pursuit of holiness. And the pursuit of holiness was kind of launching us into a couple more transitions in this epistle. For example, the, the next transition that we looked at was the pursuit of holiness toward one another, speaking specifically and directly to the church, our care, our love for one another. And we actually spent a considerable amount of time uh, in that section or in that transition. We spent about three weeks just looking at all that not only God has done for us in Christ, but what God calls us to in light of loving one another and pursuing holiness within the church. The fourth transition, which is where, we're st- where we still find ourselves, started last week. And it was the pursuit of holiness 
toward others, and particularly toward others who, who may not know Jesus? What does it look like to pursue holiness in the context where people are going to reject you, people are going to speak uh, uh, ill of you, people are going to not necessarily uh, agree with your convictions, and people are ultimately, once again, going to reject you? What does it look like to pursue holiness uh, to them? And so last week was the start of that transition. And uh, in addition to to that last week we looked at a word in the English language it, it's broken up into two words it was honorable conduct right that was something in verse 12 of last week's time that that Peter talked about uh, he says uh, when you conduct yourself make sure you have honorable conduct among the Gentiles and uh, that word uh, or those words honorable conduct it's translated into one word in the Greek language and it's called or pronounced kalos, right? Or maybe you could be cooler and call it kalos, but we're not, so it's kalos, K-A-L-O-S. And, and kalos, what it means is that we conduct ourselves in a way that reflects our Creator, that our conduct is noble and attractive because it is reflecting Christ. And so that is ultimately the means or our motivation for kalos, for honorable conduct. The motivation for kalos is this gospel-centered holiness, not self-centered righteousness, that, that what we do and what we say actually preaches a sermon about what we believe about Jesus. Right? What we do and what we say actually preaches a sermon about Jesus. And so today, uh, we're going to continue talking about the pursuit of holiness as it pertains to submission and suffering. In particular, from government authority. It's going to make it nice and it's like going to be like a nice like stew of awkward. Right? <laughs> And so here's, here's the thing. This, this sermon isn't necessarily going to preach that, that politics or conviction and, uh, or speaking up aren't important. I think those things are important. They're, they're, they're very, very important, actually. Um, but I'm not necessarily here to challenge your political ideologies. I'm actually here to, to challenge your heart behind those political anal- uh, ideologies. Because here's my concern. Like, check it. This is just straight up. Here's my concern. My concern is that we forget that the gospel, right, what God has done for us in Christ, we forget that the gospel actually has implications for how we live and what we say. See, because those two things, those, those things that we centered them on Kalos, how we live and, and what we say, those two things ought to be not just reminding us, but pointing others to Jesus and his glory. And ultimately, my concern is that your political party or your political figure may be receiving more glory than your Savior. That is ultimately what my concern is. And so Peter is going to help us understand and remember through the gospel that we have been set free, that through what Christ has done on the cross, you and I as Christians are actually free. That we have been freed from the bondage of sin and that we are free in Christ to submit and suffer well. 
And as a result of those two things, through submission and suffering, we can actually demonstrate godliness. We can actually demonstrate holiness. That, that kalos, you're going to hear that word come up a lot today. That kalos that Peter was talking to us about in verse 12 last week, that as a result of what God has done, we can actually demonstrate godliness. We can actually demonstrate holiness in a culture of uh, political hostility or disagreement. And as a result, demonstrate the glory of God. So, in true me fashion, this is broken up into three sections, and I have ten points. Not ten points per section, just ten points in total. Okay? So, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read again. First Peter, if you just got here, chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to go all the way through verse 25. Here we go. This is what Peter writes. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. God, as we step into... Uh, the worship of your word. Lord, I pray just a couple of simple things. At least I think they're simple. Number one, that I would be set aside and that you, Holy Spirit, would speak through me. That you would be at work in me. That whatever words land on my brothers and sisters and friends who are here, whatever those words are that land uh, on their ears, that you, Holy Spirit, would use them to work in their hearts. And as a result, that if uh, those who know you, that they would actually come to know you more, that they would worship you even more through repentance and conviction and confession. And that those who don't know you would come to know you this morning. 
God, pray that this time would glorify you and then it would just be for our good. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'll walk you through the sections. We're going to go one at a time because, again, there's several things in each one. And so the first section is going to be, uh, it's called Freedom and Submission. In other words, because of the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, we are free to submit. And that sounds like an awkward statement, right? That because of what Jesus has done, you and I are now free to submit as servants, Well, in order to unpack that and in order to best understand that, we need to answer a couple of questions so that we have a fair or at least a clear understanding of what Peter is trying to tell us in this section of Scripture. And so the first first question is going to be, well, what is the context Right? Oftentimes, I think we might just read Scripture and say, okay, this is what uh, the author of this letter is saying, and that's great. Uh, and so I'm going to take it at face value, and I think that's wonderful. I think that's a good thing. And it's also equally important to look at the context of what is going on so that we would see how this applies to ourselves. Because, in particular, when we look at a hostile or maybe just like, a, oh, I don't know, a tense political climate, sometimes, or uh, we're looking at the sensitivity of one another. Sometimes we think, man, this is getting really bad. And, and you look at the news and you change the channels and you're constantly seeing something happen. Something is going on just this week in Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh, someone murdered several Muslim people, about 50 of them. Uh, you can look back to last week and see something else horrific happen. You, you change the channel and there's so many things going on and there's so much tension happening uh, that oftentimes when we read Scripture and we read it plainly, we think they don't know, they don't have some of the things that we are going through, Right? And so what I want you to listen to, this isn't on your notes, and so before you take any notes, before you do anything, I just want you to listen. There is this Roman historian around the time that Peter wrote this letter. His name is Tacitus, or Tacitus. I actually spoke about him in the first uh, sermon uh, on this series. And so you can go back and and hear him out. And he's a Roman historian. He He wasn't a Christ follower, but he records something in his memoirs concerning the context of what was going on in Peter's time under the rule of the emperor Nero, who wasn't exactly a fun guy. And so this is what he writes, okay? He says, and just bear with me, check it. He writes, yet no human effort nor uh, princely uh, offerings to the gods could make that infamous rumor disappear that Nero had somehow ordered the fire. In this time where Peter is at, all these fires are starting to happen. And many people are predicting, such as this dude, that it was actually Nero who started the fire. It wasn't actually something as a result of someone else, that Nero is actually causing these fires. Anyway, he continues. Therefore, in order to abolish that rumor, that is Nero, in order to get rid of that rumor, rumor, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishment those people called Christians, who were infamous for their abominations. 
In other words, these are individuals, these are Christians who spoke out against what was going on, the unjust things that were going on, and they are calling what they're speaking up against, they're calling it abominations. And he goes on to write, the originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator uh, Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again, not only through Judea, which was the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome, to which all that is horrible and shameful floods together and is celebrated. Therefore, first, those who were seized, those are the Christians, those who were seized, who admitted their faith, and then, using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted. They were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them. Or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Nero gave his own gardens for this spectacle. People began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on the account of the fierceness of one man. And so Peter is writing to Christians in that context and is saying, submit to those authorities. That's who I want you to submit to. Which begs the second question. Well, then what is biblical submission? What is biblical submission? And here's what I conjured up. Biblical submission is a willing denial, a yielding of your rights for the benefits and blessing of others. Getting really awkward in here, right? Biblical submission is a willing denial, a yielding of your rights for the benefits and blessing of others. Biblical submission is actually at the heart of being a Christian. Biblical submission is not only something we ought to do, but like Jesus, it's going to have implications toward others in authority and in how we suffer. Further, biblical submission points back to Jesus and brings Him glory. That's, those are the, the few, few things. This is the context that he's writing on. So, man, he gets it. You talk about like political tension and hostility. He's like, yeah, I get it. You weren't a lamp for some dude's entertainment, right? So he gets it. And on top of that, we just looked at what biblical submission is. Now, because we have several points in this section, I may not spend as much time as you'd like me to on certain sections, but we also have more than 10 verses to look at. So you'll have to forgive me, but I'll do my best. So the third question is, okay, fine. We get the context. We understand biblical submission a little bit more. I don't necessarily like it, but I understand it a little bit more. So then what does this look like? Put it differently. If we are free because of the gospel, then what? Then what? So We're going to turn to that section, verses 13 to 17, and here's the first thing. The first thing is that we are free to submit. We are free to submit, and this is coming from verses 13 and 14. And I want to reread some of these. This is what Peter says. He says, be subject. That means to submit. Be subject for the Lord's sake. 
to every human institution, whether it be to the, uh, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For the Lord's sake tells us two things. That, that phrase that you see in verse 13. For the Lord's sake tells us two things about governing authorities. The first thing that it tells us about, or the first thing that it tells us, is that we must obey. But that obedience is actually secondary because point number two, our primary allegiance is to God. Our primary allegiance is to God. That as we submit and obey to authorities, we are doing so in a way that brings honor and glory to God, not necessarily glory to the government. One of the things I'll talk about in just a moment, one of the things I'll talk about is that, man, we serve not because we are their servants, but because we are servants of God. And that is incredibly crucial to first understand. Now, as I'm going through this first point on free to submit, uh, some of you may be like sitting up, cringing, not wanting to talk about this, hoping that this awkwardness like ends, but we're going to sit in it for a while. Like in my run through, I practiced this and it was like 45 minutes. And so when I'm on stage, I usually go about 50. So it's going to get a little more awkward. But apart from that, Apart from that, here, here's the thing. One of the things that I found myself doing, which I'm pretty sure you might be doing, is that as we walk through this section and as we walk through suffering, you're going to be thinking about loopholes on how that doesn't necessarily apply to you. You're going to be thinking about loopholes uh, and you're going to use phrases like, yeah, but, right? Now, I'm not saying there aren't loopholes and I'm not saying we shouldn't speak up about those things. That's just not what I'm going to be talking about because I want to stick to the text, right? Not our preference. I want to stick to the text. And so stick with me for a while, because uh, that awkwardness, that's not me. It's, it's, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. So number one is that we are free to submit, but our obedience comes secondary because our priority is our allegiance to God. And so we can submit and obey authorities in a way that brings honor and glory to God. There's that word, kalos. Our honorable conduct reflects Jesus, because the conduct is noble and attractive, and it reflects his glory, his character, his work, his children. So that's number one. Number two is that we are then free to serve. Look at verses 15 and 16. He writes, For this is the will of God. Now, that word for, we're going to look at it several times in this, uh, in this section of Scripture. And often when you see that word, F-O-R, for, often when you see that, he is giving you the reason as to what he just told you. So he just said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, verse 15, for. In other words, he's saying, because this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live, and I believe verse 16 is the key in this, in this section, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. 
but living as servants of God. This, uh, verse 15 and 16, it is an echo of verse 12 from last week. Again, that word, kalos, remember I told you, we're going to hear it a lot today. It is a reflection or an echo of that word from verse 12, that we live in a way where our confidence is in Christ and that the humility we carry is made evident to all. We live in a way, this is what he's saying in verse 15 and 16, that we live in a way where our confidence that is in Christ and the humility that we ought to be walking in, that it is made evident to everyone. Not just the people you like. Because this section is specifically talking about those that you don't necessarily agree with. Additionally, he brings it back saying that God, when uh, he brings it back to God, saying that we submit to authorities not because we're their servants, but because we are God's servants. Again, the motivation, check it, the motivation for submission is godliness and holiness, both of which bring glory to God. Now we're just looking at the text. I still got additional notes. The motivation behind submission, and this is all practical, the motivation behind submission is godliness and holiness, both of which bring glory to God. So, as a result of the gospel, we are free to submit, we are free to serve, and we are free, verse 17, to honor. Let's go to verse 17. Verse 17, he says, honor everyone. I want you to circle that word honor. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Circle that one as well. It's fascinating that Peter begins with honor in this verse and he ends with honor in this verse. The first word, the first honor in this section is a timeless honor. He's saying honor everybody. I'm not just talking about government officials. I'm not just talking about your parents. I'm talking about everybody. Honor everybody everybody. Love the brotherhood. That is specific to the fellowship of believers. We spent three weeks talking about what it looks like to pursue holiness and love one another. So if you want to know more about love the brotherhood, go to those sermons for three weeks worth, right? He says, fear God as a result of what God has done. Your allegiance is to him. So your eyes ought to be fixed on him. And then he says, honor the emperor. That is present tense honor the emperor. Why? Why should we honor the emperor? Because while we may disagree practically and passionately, these people, these people are still created in the image of God. I think that's what we forget. That is where we draw an invisible line in our Christian belief or in our Christian life. That because I'm a Christian or because I'm on the right side of my political preference, they're wrong, they're Satan. Honor the emperor, because while we may disagree, it is still people created in the image of God. And so when we summarize verse 17, essentially what he's saying, we should love our country. We should totally love our country. And this includes honoring those who are in authority. But we should not put 
our hope in them. I think the reason people, and in particular the church, gets very, uh, oh, I don't know what word to use. I have the mic, right? I'm sorry. Uh, sensitive or, or maybe riled up about X, Y, and Z. I'm not going to look at, I'm not thinking about anything in particular, but I think oftentimes is because, or oftentimes people get so upset, so passionate, isn't just because they disagree with whatever is being discussed. It's because their God is being poked at and they don't like it. Their God is being poked at because their hope is in that government official. Their hope is in that political figure. Their hope is in that political party. Their hope is in whatever local, national, or state, federal government structure you want to look at. Their hope is in that and not in their Savior. And so when you go online and you're seeing people rip one another up, they're ripping one another up because they're trying to bring glory to a God that doesn't exist and who is ultimately going to fail you. And the glory isn't going to Jesus. And so people are so upset because their gods are being poked at while Jesus is in the background and in the margins. So, because of our political climate, we as the church actually have a monstrous opportunity to display the glory of God. And so it leads me to ask two questions. These aren't on your notes. And really, it's two questions, it's, but it's really just one giant one. First one is, what do people hear you saying about the glory of God? What do people hear you saying about the glory of God? Let me put it differently. Are you concerned about what people may say or think about Jesus based on on what you say about the state, the government, elected officials, the president? Are you concerned about what people may say or think about Jesus when you rip them apart? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have boldness. I'm not saying we shouldn't have convictions. I'm not even saying that we shouldn't have passions. You should. We should have boldness and conviction and passions. And we should speak up and stand firm on things that are uh, significant. But our priority as exiles, that is who Peter addresses us as. Our priority as exiles is that we live in a way that is distinct, not in a way that is constantly cracking the whip. It is so, I don't know. And here's the thing. Like, I am not the most politically intelligent person. Like, I've had several conversations with y'all, and I'm like learning from you, and I appreciate that because I want to learn, and I want to ask questions. And sometimes I fear asking questions because I don't necessarily know what kind of trigger that question may have. It's just that I don't know. But more importantly, setting myself aside, I can go online. Like, this last week, uh, I got back on Twitter because it's kind of a nice news feed, and uh, I, so I just read the news through that, whatever. I got back online. Uh, you can visit social media, and you'll see people literally eating one another with their ideologies. 
I'm not saying you can't disagree. I'm not saying you're saying just love everybody and ignore it. No, no, I think you should have intellectual discourse. I think you can have a proper debate and disagreement. And those things are going to happen. It is inevitable. But what, not, like, what trips me out is that I will see Christians, and that might be you, I will see Christians like cuss out, rip one another apart, rip other Christians apart, and then you come here on Sundays and you act like it's all good when internally your heart is boiled because they just think differently than you politically. And we jack it up. And that has nothing to do with the glory of God. And so you will talk, or we will talk about loving one another and reflecting Kalos like it's theoretical, but we won't live it out. We won't live it out because while we don't want to admit it, our political ideology or whatever you want to look at in terms of governing authority is actually our God. So can we please just speed this up so that we don't talk about this anymore? And we speed it up because really, now we're talking about your God. Now we're talking about something that is failing you or someone else is poking at. Whatever, man. We are to live in a way that is distinct. Where we honor everyone and our confidence in Christ and the humility that we ought to carry is evident to all. In particular, those who don't know Jesus, and in this case, especially those whom we disagree with or may disagree with us. So are we just not supposed to do anything? Or are you just saying ignore it? No, I'm saying reflect the glory of God, not your glory. Listen to, this is Micah 6.8. You're like, so what am I supposed to do? He tells us. He says, has, uh, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. See, God's told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Pretty good and dry. Are we saying we're not supposed to do anything? No, it says here, do what is good. Do justice. Are we not supposed to, man, love kindness and walk humbly with your God. God, we are to live in a manner that is distinct, that has nothing to do with your personal convictions or all these other things. We are to live in a manner that is distinct so that we would look at our time, our culture, our preferences through the lens of the gospel. That is how and why the gospel sets us free. Section number two, freedom in suffering. So now we're transitioning to verse 18 to 23. Because of the gospel, we are free to suffer well. In other words, our our hope is not on earthly things, but what is heavenly. Now, we can hear that and we'll say, yeah, I don't know what that means. So, we'll talk about that in a bit. So, our hope is not in earthly things, but in what is heavenly. And suffering reflects the beauty of God's character. And suffering stinks. (laughs) And it's hard. So, much like the first section, let's answer two questions to better understand suffering. Whether this is through a uh, politically hostile climate, or maybe you're in a season of suffering, or maybe you're headed towards a difficult season, or maybe you know someone who is in a hard season right now. We're going to better understand suffering. And the way we're going to understand suffering is by speaking specifically about a certain kind of suffering. 
So that begs the first question, well, what kind of sufferings are there? Well, I'm sure there are more. We're going to look at three, but talk about one. The first one is natural suffering. In all my notes, I have that in uh, quotations, natural suffering. Natural suffering refers to something that affects us all as humans. Sickness, disease, death, we all have, unfortunately, an expiration date. And I put it in quotations because that just simply wasn't the way it was supposed to be. But nevertheless, as a result of a fallen world and our fallen condition, those are things that we are all going to experience. Natural suffering. Number two is uh, consequential suffering, suffering or uh, just suffering. Here's what I mean by that. Consequential suffering refers to suffering because of poor decisions. Right? Like, like you have a project and it's due on Friday and you wait to Thursday to get started on your project, right? And then you're dying, right? Like, or maybe you don't get the grade you want or your boss chews you out or you're now set behind several weeks or whatever the thing is, right? Like, and you're like, man, life is just so hard. No, it, yeah, that's suffering because you didn't make good decisions, right? And that's just one example. But you can, you can paint whatever it is you want when it comes to just suffering, right? When it comes to, to just suffering, it could be something like that. Or maybe you made poor decisions that led you to receive discipline. I don't know. Whatever it is, it's just suffering, right? As a result of poor decisions. The third one, which is the one that we're going to be talking about, is unjust suffering. Unjust suffering is when you do good and suffer, when you do good and you're rejected, when you do good and people threaten you, when you do good and they revile against you, when you do good and they retaliate against you. That's the one we're going to be talking about. And so those are the kinds of sufferings we're going to be talking about on just suffering. So it begs us to the next question. Okay, fine. We're going to be talking about unjust suffering. Part of the sermon is on how to submit and suffer well. So naturally the next question then is, well, then how do we suffer well? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to look at Scripture. All right? Beginning in verse 18, this is what Peter says. Beginning in verse 18, we're going to hunker down in verse 20 in this first one. All right? So how do we suffer well? Point number one, and I don't know what word to use best. You can fill it in, right? I don't know. Embrace or maybe understand, accept. I don't know what the word is. Uh, but, but embrace the fact that we will suffer. Now, that's number one. We need to first embrace, understand, accept, see that clearly, biblically, that we will suffer. And that goes contrary to the theology of the prosperity gospel and word of faith because they will say, well, you suffered because you just didn't believe enough. You will suffer because maybe your faith wasn't too strong. You will suffer because you just didn't give enough. No, no, you will suffer because Jesus suffered. That before glory comes suffering. And so we need to understand again that we are going to suffer. Verse 18, he says, servants, be subject. There's that word again from verse 13, be subject. So he's saying submit to your masters. Now, real quick, he's going to talk about masters and slaves. Part of the reason he's talking about that is because about 25% of the population that he's writing to were slaves. But he's just using this as a gateway to talk about suffering. We're actually not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. 
He says, suffering, or servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. To, oh, man, here's a, here's a part that, that gets us all riled up. Not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust, right? Because it's not suffering. It's not submission until you disagree. You know what I mean? Like, when it comes to, to, to serving or being submissive to the good boss, it's like, man, I love my job. But then what about if the boss isn't exactly, uh, you know, cool, right? I don't know what word to use, but you could insert that. Anyway, so he says, uh, also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. There's that word again. When mindful of God, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Remember when in, in the pursuit of holiness, Peter says, uh, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded, right? You got to have your head on right. He says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering. Here's what I want you to know about, I think that was up to verse 19. Unjust suffering. Unjust suffering brings sorrow. I'm just going to let that sit for a little bit. Unjust suffering brings sorrow and grief. It's heavy. It's weighty. It stinks. It's hard. And I love that Peter says that. Because Peter writes in a way where he's just being real and very plain, and he addresses how we may or will feel. Like he's not just painting it theologically, right? He's, he's talking to us very practically, right? For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. To embrace unjust suffering or unjust opposition requires the Holy Spirit. And we need an example to follow. That's what Peter's going to show us next. But before we go there, I want you to go to verse 20. This is where we're going to park for just a minute. Verse 20. Verse 20, he says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is a gracious thing. Here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to remember that when you suffer unjustly, when you suffer unjustly, the Father looks down at you and is pleased with you. The Father looks down at you and is pleased with you. That when he sees you suffering unjustly and continuing to move forward in uh, spite of the difficulty of that season, what he is saying, what the Father says when he sees you doing that, he says, man, this reminds me of my son. This reminds me of Jesus. So we need to understand, embrace, accept, whatever it is, that we will suffer like Jesus. And unjust suffering brings sorrow. Now, in particular, in American culture, in the American church, we don't want to talk about that because those are icky feelings. 
right? That makes it uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about sorrow. I don't want to talk about grief. I don't want to talk about how hard it's going to be. I don't want to talk about this weight that I actually have that I just don't want to tell anybody about. And then I just, if I just tell myself that I'm a winner enough, I'm sure it'll leave, right? Peter addresses it right here. Unjust suffering brings sorrow. It brings sorrow. And when we suffer unjustly like Jesus, the Father is actually pleased with us. Now we're looking, we're looking at this practically. You're like, but how do we do it? We'll get to that in a minute. So that's point number one, that we are to suffer like Jesus, or excuse me, we're going to suffer like Jesus. Number two is when we suffer, we must suffer like Jesus. Beginning in verse 21, all right? Beginning in verse 21. For, there's that word, he's telling us the because. For to this you have been called. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. That word example, I want you to circle it. So that you might follow in his footsteps. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Or we're going to talk about that for a minute. So, when we suffer, we must suffer like Jesus. I told you to circle that word example. I will, I, will, uh, I guess, define it, unpack it through way of example. <laughs> no pun intended. Anyway, um, when, uh, when I was in school and when I was in elementary, maybe some of you did this, right? You got this like piece of paper and it had the alphabet on there, right? And it had like uh, A, B, C in capital letters and in lowercase letters and there were dotted lines. You guys remember that? right? Only some of us that were awake, right? So we did that. What did you have to do? You had to trace it, right? You had to trace it, capital A, uh, lowercase a, capital B, and so on and so forth. The word example that Peter is using here, we'll go back to it one more time. He says, uh, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. What he's saying is that word example, he's saying that we're going to, we ought to copy we're going to copy that his life is actually a template for how we are to suffer. His life is a template that we are to trace over it, that we are to copy it. And so he gives us four things that Jesus, I guess you could say, did or didn't do. So check it. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. For here you go, verse 22. This is what Jesus did, or I guess you could look at it in terms of what Jesus didn't do. He said, he committed no sin. That's number one. Number two, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Number three, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And number four, when he suffered, he did not threaten. Isn't it ironic, fascinating, sad, same thing, whatever word you want to use, that when we look at the life of Jesus, when we see him and read in his word that he was beaten with whips, that a crown of thorns was placed on his head, that his beard was plucked, that when he was beaten with rods, forced to carry his own cross, nailed to it in between two criminals, eventually died and was pierced in his side. Throughout all of that, 
He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He didn't revile and he didn't threaten. And we lose sight of that because our tendency when we suffer unjustly, like Jesus suffered unjustly, is actually to lash out. It's actually to lash out and justify our actions. Rather than reflecting kalos, a conduct that brings glory to God, a conduct that that even though we may disagree and even though this season may be really difficult, man, through what I do and through what I say and through how I live, I'm going to point everything back to Jesus and his glory because I want you more than I want to agree with you. I want you to know Jesus even more. And yet Jesus in this doesn't lash out. He doesn't justify his actions. In fact, on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is in the midst of him being taunted, right? You call yourself Savior. You can't even save yourself. You're on the cross. And you can't even save yourself. And he says, Father, forgive them. And so rather than responding with cursing, Jesus responds with blessing. Jesus responds with blessing. And so that brings us to number three. How we are to suffer well? One, understand that we will suffer like Jesus. Two, when we suffer, we must suffer like Jesus. And number three, that we are to trust God. That we are to trust God. Look at the end of verse 22 and 23. So he says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus not only trusted in the Father to sustain him, but to vindicate him at the right time. See, the only way we will find strength to endure is through the reminder that by Jesus doing the same, enduring unjust suffering, is that Jesus doing the same, he secured for us forgiveness and healing. That suffering like Jesus is actually redemptive. And in verses 24 to 25, he gives us the how, which I know many of us are just like, but how do we do it? It was Jesus. Man, I know people that suffer unjustly. I know people that can willingly submit to governing authorities. Man, I find that all difficult. But how do I do that? I get what you're saying. I see what Scripture says. But how do I do it? And he tells us in verse 24 to 25. I'll read them and then I'll give you the answer. He says, He, that is Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Here's how Peter tells us to suffer well. He says, through unity in Christ. Unity in Christ. 
because of what Jesus has done, because of what God has done in Christ, we are free to submit and suffer well. Why? Because we have been freed from the bondage of sin. That on the cross, He bore your sin. The sin that you committed yesterday, the sin that you committed today, the sin that you're going to commit tomorrow. He bore our sin. And as a result of Him bearing our sin, absorbing our sin, He then gives us His righteousness. And so as a result, we are free from the bondage of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to the King, to the Redeemer. And you will hear that and you will say, yes, amen, but you forget that we are actually supposed to die to self, that we still fight sin so that we might live according to His righteousness. The righteousness that you and I have as Christians was a gift on behalf of His perfect obedience, not our perfect obedience. But as a result, because we have been free from the power of sin, we haven't been freed to disobey. In fact, because He has rescued us from our sin, now we are free to obey God because we are right with God because of what God has done for us in Christ. We have been free from the bondage of sin. That we are free in Christ. That means that we belong to Him. That we've returned to Him because of the work of Christ in Him uh, or in us. That we belong to Him. That we have been redeemed. That our wounds have been healed because He bore those wounds on the cross on our behalf. And so when we look at verses 24 and 25, here are two lies that you and I tend to wrestle with. And here are two lies that you and I tend to believe. The first one is we will read verses 24 and 25 and we'll see that, man, Jesus is a really good example. And that's about it. He lacks power. Jesus is a good example, but he lacks power. Or the other lie is that, man, Jesus paid for my sins, but man, I am so filthy. I could never be like that. So I should just quit trying. And what the gospel actually does is the gospel brings these two things together. That because Jesus bore our sin on the cross, we have been healed. We have been redeemed. And as a result, we have the power. That's the Holy Spirit. We have the power to suffer and submit well like Him. Submission, when we go back up to that section, submission is godly. Submission is holy because it points back to Jesus and His glory, not your own. Suffering is not meaningless. Suffering is redemptive. That though we suffer unjustly and experience sorrow, we are being made into the image of Christ. And as a result, we can or He can sympathize with us. He's not distant saying, you got to figure it out. He's actually gone through it. And so because He's gone through it, we have access to God. We have access to God. We are free to submit to kings and suffer unjustly because our king submitted and suffered for us. Let's pray. God, I'm just going to be totally honest. Like uh, submitting and suffering is really hard. 
In fact, our, our, our tendency, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, uh, but my tendency is to actually uh, buck against that and to even retaliate or to justify my actions, to justify my words. That I actually find hope not so much in, in uh, authorities, but I actually find my hope in, in how quickly I could say something or come up with something. And the, and the truth is that, man, I'm really just trying to bring glory to myself and I'm really just demonstrating self-righteousness rather than the gift of your righteousness on uh, my behalf uh, rather than reflecting your glory. God, how many people have we withheld grace from? How many people have we withheld grace from because we were more oh, I don't know, attracted to a false God, a false idol. God, would you forgive us of that? God, the the passions and the convictions and the boldness that you've given us, it's certainly something that you've put in us. And we thank you for that. God, may we use those things wisely. May we use those things and to speak up for the, for the oppressed and the voiceless, but may we use those things at the same time to, to, to reflect and point to your glory. God, may we suffer well by looking at Jesus. That our hope isn't in the circumstance, but it's in our joy that is found in Christ that he willingly went to the cross, bore our sin, died on our behalf, satisfied your wrath, gave us the grace that we cannot earn, and made us his, his prized possession. God, may, we, may what we do, starting right now, not at lunchtime or when we leave this building or when we have time to chew on it, may we, like what we do and what we say and how we live, may it be honorable. May it be a conduct that is honorable. May it be kalos, where we reflect you through our conduct. Not for the purpose of being better, but for the purpose of pointing others to you and bringing you glory. God, as we walk to a time of tithes and offerings, God, this is a continued time of worship. This is where we give you our stuff. This is where we relinquish the control we think we have. This is a tangible demonstration of transformation in our life, in our hearts, that we don't belong to this money. We actually belong to you, and our desire is to further your gospel in our city, that more people would come to know you, not just through the proclamation of your grace, but through the practice of it. God, we love you, and we thank you for this time. We thank you for the hard word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.